Let's talk about something encouraging today, like government. (laughs) Why do you laugh like that? That may be an indication that you are like many people today, and we've seen this very clearly in our society and our culture, especially in the, the last few years, that you might have found yourself growing in an internal sense of dismay and discouragement perhaps, maybe even outright anger with what you have seen, what you are learning about, what you are experiencing from our government. Do you ever find yourself thinking that our government seems to be fostering hate and anger because they seem enslaved to political extremists who are enslaved to lifestyles that are radically contrary to the scripture. They're deceived as they foster attitudes and actions that the Bible actually calls foolish. There's even a possibility that in their being deceived, they are deceiving us. In the last few years, we've seen government pass bipartisan legislation redefining marriage according to a homosexual agenda, even with the backing of a Missouri senator who used to be the president of a Southern and Missouri Baptist University. The government has been foolishly spending trillions of dollars through rushed legislation that is adversely affecting our economy. During covid Local county government encouraged citizens to turn in fellow citizens for investigations about inadequate masking enforcement in public settings. Government shut down our entire society from public engagement and enjoyment, but also seemed to turn its head when violent protests violated those same governmental mandates. One governor of a very liberal state recently used campaign funds to pay for billboards in other states that suggested that abortion was a biblically sanctioned way to, as Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. To put it mildly, our government has pursued a course and it holds a worldview that many Christians in our country find themselves at odds with odds with. Would you agree? It seems that we're seeing a growing disdain and an even hostility towards the application of any Christian principles in the public square. Christianity is being relegated to our thought life alone and attacked in any setting where it shows itself publicly. And as the governmental systems around us have pursued what the Bible calls foolish, disobeying the word of the creator, deceived and deceiving itself by its own self-defined wisdom, enslaved to lust for power and immorality, filled with anger and fostering hate. Have you found in your heart a growing sense of submissiveness to the government? Would you characterize your attitude and your actions as obedient, seeking what is good toward our government, respectful, peaceful, gentle, and meek? 
what in the world would even produce in us that kind of response to a government that seems to oppose most of what we cherish? Maybe you've been finding ways to excuse your own anger, your own hate, finding yourself enslaved to opposition, buying into the extreme alternative media that is in our world today, disregarding the government, acting out either online or in personal conversations or even in more dramatic ways. And you might say to yourself, well, at least our democracy guarantees us such expressions. And just so you know, it's not getting better. An October 2019 Pew Research article states, quote, the religious landscape of the United States continues to change at a rapid clip. In Pew Research Center telephone surveys conducted in 2018 and 2019, 65% of American adults describe themselves as Christians when asked about their religion. 65%. Now that might sound good to you. That's down 12 percentage points over the past decade. Meanwhile, the religiously unaffiliated share share of the population consisting of people who describe their religious identity as atheist, agnostic, or, quote, nothing in particular, unquote, now stands at 26% up from 17% in 2009. How are we supposed to respond to this as Christians? How are we supposed to respond when our government and our society seem contrary to most of what we believe is right, what we know to be true? Do you have any sense inside of you when you heard these verses read for you? Any sense inside that you're tempted to dismiss these words as irrelevant to our present situation? Well, when you feel that penchant to say, I know what that says, but here's where we are. Remind yourself that these words were written by a man who had been recently released from a Roman prison, incarcerated purely because he was preaching about salvation in Jesus Christ alone. Paul's political leaders legally legally murdered Christians for sport, mockery, and just to make a political point. Paul's political leaders called themselves gods and demanded that the citizens worshipfully acknowledge them as such. The treatment of many women, children, slaves, and economically depressed citizens in Paul's era makes our present day look almost angelic. The rampant immorality in Paul's day and the dysfunctional ways that families existed make our culture look far better than we often realize. To speak against the culture in Paul's day was viewed as treasonous and could result in being jailed or even executed. Paul himself was almost murdered for upsetting the economic climate of just one single city because he was preaching the gospel. He was almost stoned to death, publicly beaten, jailed numerous times, literally chased out of some cities and had many murderous plots on his life, all in public by publicly recognized citizens and some city officials. But let's not just read Titus 3 in light of our country and Paul's day. 
you do realize that the Holy Spirit actually inspired these words also for over one billion people who today live under Islamic rule. And these words still apply to billions who still live live under communism. Saudi, Iranian, Iraqi, Sudanese, Egyptian, Algerian, Chinese, Indonesian Christians who are actually being martyred and persecuted are called to the same standard we have just read and all for the same reasons we are called to this standard found in Titus 3. How are we to respond? It's not rocket science, is it? It's actually very, very clear of how we're to respond as Christians to a Christless society. You know how we're to respond? Like Christians. Like Christians who represent Jesus, who represent his character, who display his own response to similar events. What we find in Titus 3, 1 to 7, is explicit instruction of how Christians live as gospel-driven citizens, gospel-centered citizens in a Christless culture. This is so helpful for us even today. I remember preaching through this passage some 12 years ago when I first came to our church no idea that we would have all that has happened in our past, our recent past, happen. Preaching these themes and pulling it out again as we were going through the recent days of the past few years when it seemed like the government was all we could think about and talk about. And the words here haven't changed. It hasn't changed. They, they still sound the same. They read the same. Even though the, the setting around us feels a lot more difficult than it did 12 years ago, to be quite honest. How are we supposed to live among and respond to a society that has no understanding of, let alone an appreciation of or acceptance of any form of our understanding of a Christian commitment and our convictions? Well, this morning we're going to look at it. And Paul shows us here, under the inspiration of the Spirit, three ways gospel-centered people are to respond to a Christless culture. It's very simple. Three different ways gospel-centered people respond to a Christless culture. I think it's clear we're living in a culture you could say is rapidly becoming Christless. If a decade ago... And just over a decade ago, almost 15 years ago, there were 12% more Christians, people affirming themselves to be Christians in whatever definition that might be, by the way. Certainly we're further removed from that now, but the word doesn't change. Here's the three marks of gospel-centered citizens. First, gospel-centered citizens promote Christ-centered character. Here's what we do. We promote Christ-centered character. Again, it's in verses 1 to 2. Remind them to be subject to rulers and to authorities. Now, rulers and authorities, when those terms are used, most often refer to secular, governmental, societal rulers and authorities. Be subject to rulers and to authorities. To be obedient. 
to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. In other words, if you're driven by the gospel, centered on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, you promote a kind of Christ-centered character. A Christ-centered character. Now, what does that look like? If you wanted to say, now this is what it looks like to to look like Christ in our culture that has really nothing for Christ, what would we say that looks like? Well, Paul gives us seven reminders in case we forget. And they're reminders because you see him say that here. Remind them. Do you see that word? Remind them to be. He's writing to Titus who is in all of these new churches on the island of Crete. They're brand new to Christianity and they have to be reminded, which is interesting because this evidently was fundamental to what Paul believed being a Christian was all about. And they have to be reminded. In other words, living this way in light of a Christless culture is Christianity 101. It's basic. And they have to be reminded. Why do you think they had to be reminded? Why do you think they had to be reminded? Because it's not natural to live this way. It doesn't feel right to respond this way when the world seems to be against you. So you have to remind them. And in fact, the way Paul writes this, it's as if he's saying, remind them over and over and over again. The preacher who keeps saying the same things over and over and you wish he'd just move on. Maybe he would if we applied it faithfully, right? And that's probably the idea. You have to be reminded because your, your heart and your nature and the, the sinful state that you still live in, you still carry around the flesh, it's still tempted to respond in ways that are not Christ-centered. So you have to be reminded again and again and again. What are these seven different reminders? Well, Christ-centered character looks like being submissive. Christ-centered citizens are submissive. Submissive. To be submissive. This term has already been used in the book earlier. It described wives who submit to their husbands in chapter 2, verse 5. It describes slaves who submit to their own masters in chapter 2, verse 9. And now it refers to all Christians are to be submissive to government leaders. This is the first and foremost a recognition of a God-given authority in government. Therefore, you show yourself to be submissive to it. This is not the only place you find this kind of injunction, is it? Jot down Romans 13.1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities because there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Romans 13, 1, verse 5 of Romans 13. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. You don't just obey the government because they could come against you. You do it for conscience sake, not for your conscience in front of the government, but your conscience in front of God. 1 Peter 2, 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, and he goes on to mention others. Be submissive. And can I say to you, 
that word submissiveness has an idea that you see yourself, you view yourself as ranked underneath someone else. It is first a mindset that you see yourself functionally ranked underneath someone else, not in terms of being a human being who are all created in the image of God, but in terms of functional order in the society. Paul is saying Christian citizens, gospel-centered citizens, understand that they should have a mindset that aligns themselves underneath God-established human institutions of government. It's a mindset. We never are to see ourselves as autonomous or free from authority. You ever find yourself kind of saying in your heart, I know the government said that, but, you know, I don't have to do everything they say. And we immediately want to pivot from the idea of be submissive to what are the exceptions? I mean, that's, that's normal and natural. We, we want to say, I, 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 that, there's limitations to that, Pastor Brett, and you need to get to those now. We need to talk about the limits of government. I'm, I'm looking for them in Titus 3, and that's where we are today. And I don't see any limits you say, are there no limits to our obedience and submissiveness to government? Well, we'll get there. This is the sort of attitude and action that Jesus demonstrated towards the idolatrous Caesars. Like in Matthew 22, verses 15 to 22, you remember the occasion in Matthew 22 when the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders wanted to trap Jesus in a statement that would either pit him against Caesar or pit him against the Jewish culture. So they bring a coin, and they, they, or he asked for the coin eventually. They ask him the question, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Is it lawful to give the poll tax to Caesar or not? He's being tested publicly. Will he defy Caesar and risk being jailed and perhaps executed? Or would he use loyalty to the government and risk rejection by the religious zealots of his day who were actually saying and advocating that loyalty to the government is disloyalty to God? And Jesus responds in verse 18 of Matthew 22. He perceived their malice and said, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? It's always subtle, isn't it? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. Well, what belonged to Caesar? The very coin that he issued. Pay it. What belongs to God? Worship. A certain kind of lifestyle. Even in the face of Caesar's, who are idolatrous, and demand our taxes. Interestingly, when Jesus stood before Pilate before he was sentenced to be crucified, which in itself was an illegal, sinful, cowardly act, Jesus actually acknowledged the authority of Pilate. In John 19, Pilate says to Jesus, you do not speak to me. You remember Jesus was silent in front of him. You do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? This is how you know Jesus was perfect, <laughs> isn't it? 
Because if you were the creator of the world who spoke everything into existence with the very breath of your, of, of your mouth and you heard a little pilot person say to you, do you not know my authority? You'd just want to flick him into the next universe, wouldn't you? <laughs> Let me show you authority. It's not just what Jesus said next that is so fascinating. When he said, you, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. I wonder how he said it. I wonder if he took his finger and put it right in Pilate's chest and said, you would have no authority over me. You think that's how he did it? I bet he was calm. I mean, he'd just been beaten too. Calm, confident, not arrogant, stayed. Authority? Oh, you wouldn't have any authority. In fact, the, the person who's worse off here is the one that put me under this situation here. They have the greater sin. When you recognize that any government authority, regardless of how they maneuvered to gain that authority, is ultimately because God sovereignly willed them to be there, you submit. You rank yourself under their authority because you are first and foremost recognizing not just the sovereignty of God to establish that, but you know God has power over them too. You're okay. Submission is the sort of attitude that brings about a gospel-centered kind of citizenship. But this submission leads to the next one, the next characteristic. And what is that? Gospel-centered citizens are not just submissive, they are obedient. Now, you won't be obedient if you're not submissive. But if you're submissive, then you will be obedient. What does this mean? Remind them to be subject, to be submissive. And remind them to be obedient. What does that mean? It's very simple, friends. It means obey the laws. Obey the laws that they prescribe. Obedience to the law should be the overarching character trait in our hunting, and our fishing, and our driving, and our tax payments. Obedience is what we're known for in our subdivisions in regard to educational laws, when we pull up to the parking meter, or we have to get a, pull, a permit pulled for our building, we just want to move a blessed wall, get the permit. The Christian who's always looking for another way around obedience actually reflects the attitude of the non-Christian world, not Christianity. Because the Christian is an obedient person. The attitude that lives in the realm of it's easier to ask forgiveness than permission, that sounds more like the culture than it does Jesus, doesn't it? We actually are to be known as an obedient person to those whom God has placed in authority over us in our life. That should be the general character quality about us. We're obedient. It's a general tenor. We're, we're not known for people of defiance or rebellion. 
we're obedient. Third, gospel-centered citizens do good. They do good. If they're driven by the gospel, centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ, then citizens in a Christless culture do good. They do good. They're ready, it says here, for every good deed. Did you notice the way it's written? They're ready. It's as if they're planning to do good. To whom? To government, to rulers, to authorities. They do good. So we who represent Christ, we're we're not just responding to the government with some kind of defensive obedience. I'm just waiting for the opportunity not to be obedient or for some kind of passive obedience or reluctant obedience. No, we're actually ready. It's as if we're on the precipice of trying to intentionally do good. We're looking for ways to do what is good in the sight of the ruling officials. It's worth us asking ourselves the question, when was the last time we intentionally considered how to be a blessing to a public official, especially to one who doesn't hold our values? I thought it was striking a number of years ago when George W. Bush was elected president a self-avowed evangelical that immediately in my inbox, my email inbox, was flooded with all kinds of requests to join the presidential prayer team, of which I did. I affirmed a lot of what George W. Bush said, and I was thankful that we had someone who said out loud that Jesus was the one who transformed his life. That encouraged me. I was glad for that. I did not receive such a flood of emails when the next president was elected. There was no presidential prayer team from evangelicals. In fact, it was eerily silent, my email inbox was, when it came to how do we prayerfully support a president that stands against much of what we believe. Evangelicals were regularly pictured surrounding President Trump in the Oval Office and in the Rose Garden. There was a lot to do about that. They're eerily silent in regard to the present president. To be honest, it smacks of hypocrisy. I'm not saying the president, the present president wants our presence. <laughs> but are we trying to, in good faith, urge people to pray for him just as much as we would anyone else in authority? I mean, think about this. Why should anybody in governing authority give our Christianity a second thought when we only initiate doing good for those who think like we think and do as we want them to do? What about a thoughtful, firm, good-hearted letter of prayer for an official you don't share worldviews with? What could you do? What could you do in your sphere of influence that would be good, that God would look at and say, that's good in my eyes. That's good that you do this for someone in leadership, regardless of what political party they find themselves in or their political philosophy or even their moral philosophy. What could we actually teach our children in this regard? And it might be worth us saying, if they just listen to the way we talk, what are we teaching our children Fourth, if you want to know what it looks like to have a Christ-centered character in front of 
political leaders, governmental leaders. Fourth, gospel-centered citizens are respectful. They're respectful. Verse 2, the opening phrase says, to malign no one. To malign no one. Literally, the word means do not blaspheme. It's translated in other places in the English Bible as slanderously charge or revile or speak evil of or denounce or deride. So if those words describe the language that flows from our mouth when watching cable news or reading inflammatory internet experts, then we had better stop consuming it because it's breeding a cultural-driven response from us, not a gospel-driven response. If we get together with brothers and sisters in Christ and we make disrespectful, crude jokes about politicians we don't like and agree with, you know what we're showing? We look more like the world. We, we don't look any different than anyone else. We're respectful. Fifth, gospel-centered citizens are peaceful. They're peaceful. That's found in the next word. Not only are we not to malign anyone in leadership, we're to be peaceable. I love the way that that word is, is rendered in the New American Standard. It's not just peaceful and that we're doing peaceful acts. We're peaceable as if that's our characteristic attitude. We're peaceable. It's used in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, where it's translated as not quarrelsome. Can we just be very plain about this? Christians are not revolutionaries against the government. We do not form mobs. We are not known for public walkouts. We are not known for angry, violent protests or insurrections. Christians do not advocate the violent overthrow of government. Disciples of Jesus do not barricade themselves in well-stocked homes with a barrage of firearms and signs on our property warning government officials to stay off or be shot. You say, oh, we're supposed to be pacifists? No, I'm not talking about whether or not a Christian can take up arms for their government. We're talking about taking up arms against our government. And that's not Christianity. We have no legitimate association with people like the Arizona pastor who some time ago gained national attention by saying he hated President Obama, prayed for his violent death, and he sparked his church members to bring automatic weapons to political rallies as well as to church. That's not Jesus. He told Peter, put the sword away. That's not my kingdom. We need to be known as the sort of person who pursues peace. We're peaceable in our heart, not to the exclusion of truth. We need to be able to speak truth, but we need to do it in a peaceable way. In fact, we should be the people who are known for having the most peaceable approach to life that is attractive and helpful and encouraging. Paul isn't finished. He gives us a sixth characteristic of what a gospel-centered citizen looks like in representing Christ-like character. Gospel-centered citizens are gentle. 
they're gentle. It's the opposite of being harsh or continually negative. It's gentle, gentle toward those who are rulers and those who are in authority. What does that mean? It means that you have a control over your temper. It means you have a control over your actions. You're not quick to be arrogantly disruptive when you are confronted with opposition from government leaders. You're gentle. And on the flip side of that, seventh, we're also meek. Gospel-centered citizens are meek. I just wonder, as we're listing these, are you, are you thinking inside, that sounds so weak. We're, they're going to run all over us if we're like this. Meek. Yeah. It's the attitude that Jesus said was present in those who would inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. They will inherit the earth. It's the attitude and character that Jesus displayed in the face of those who sought his death, 2 Corinthians 10.1. It's the fruit of those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit, meekness is, Galatians 5.23. Meekness is the way we correct our opponents, 2 Timothy 2.25. Meekness is the way we receive God's word, James 1.21. Meekness is the way we respond to those who slander us, 1 Peter 3.16. And it's how we display godly wisdom, James 3.13. Meekness is one of the most powerful reflections of the very heart of Jesus himself. Do you remember Jesus' words in Matthew 11.29? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek. I am gentle. I am lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Have you ever noticed the non-meek are the most stirred up people? Have you noticed that? There's no rest. The meek are not weak. They're rather responding with a self-control because they have a strong sense of confidence in the ultimate victory and authority of God over evil. So you can patiently endure You don't have to show yourself aggressive and hateful. In fact, meekness is the way that we're supposed to communicate the gospel to those who oppose us. 1 Peter 3.15 Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. What does that mean? What would that look like? Well, he tells us, always ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you yet with gentleness and reverence. I think we should be ready. I think we should be firm in our convictions, ready to make the defense, ready to stand up for the truth with gentleness and reverence in front of God. And I know, I hear the inevitable questions that come to this approach to government. Okay, fine, but when is it right to disobey the government? Isn't there a place for righteous indignation? Don't we have a legitimate right in our democratic form of government to peacefully protest, to lodge complaints, and use the legal system to confront and overturn government's advocacy of unrighteousness? Yes. There are times to disobey. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego showed us how to do that, didn't they? They disobeyed the government's requirement for false worship. 
Daniel disobeyed the command to pray only to a false god. The early church disobeyed the Jewish ruling officials when they were commanded not to preach Jesus any longer. And when these authorities establish laws that insist that you disobey what God has clearly called us to do, we choose to obey God rather than the governing officials. And we choose to accept the consequences that come. Paul did make an appeal to Roman law to avoid being wrongly beaten in public. Do you ever think why he did that? Yeah, he didn't want to be beaten. I think it was more. He knew that if he was publicly beaten, that the society would view Christianity as something that should not be received. It would have tainted the testimony of Christianity in the public. And he even made appeal to Roman law to avoid the beating to save the testimony of the church. John the Baptist did, in fact, confront the immorality of Herod. Paul confronted the immorality of Roman officials. He stood boldly in front of Jewish and Roman officials. He confronted their own hypocrisy. Jesus did call Herod a fox. Yes, he did. And he did tell Pilate, you have no authority other than what my father has given you. Daniel told the king he was not going to bow down and he would pray. But with what kind of attitude did they do that? When they resisted, with what kind of attitude did they resist? With what kind of quiet, respectful confidence in God's authority did they disobey? Again, I'm not suggesting that all of these characteristics are suggesting that we can't have solid convictions or make strong stands, clear, straightforward, firm, precise, objective viewpoints. No, we can have all that and we should. We should not waver on the truth. We're not going to move off of what we believe. We're going to hold to it. We're going to defy the government when they redefine marriage. We're not going to do it. We're going to meet as a church. Even if they say, well, you have to register to meet. We're not going to register to meet. We're going to meet. And there will be consequences. And we're going to face the consequences with a steady resolve that God is in ultimate control and we trust him. We trust him. How do you live this way? Well, I just want you to think through this again. Submissive, obedient, doing good, respectful, peaceful, gentle, and meek. That is Jesus. Isn't it? I was reading through 1 Peter 3 earlier this week and, and again this morning just in preparation reminding my, our, myself of a number of things. Actually, 1 Peter 2, verse 12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. What does that mean? What's the day of visitation? When he returns. So what if our, our character is never really vindicated or affirmed until Jesus comes back? Would that be okay with you? And we're called to that. 
And the very next verse says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Next statement, servants be submissive to your masters. He says, what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure, this finds favor with God. And you've been called for this purpose. Verse 21, you as Christians have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin. What? He went through all of that to save us, to give us the gospel. Chapter 3, verse 1, in the same way, wives, when you have husbands who disregard the word, you submit to them. Husbands, in the same way, when you have wives who perhaps are not living well before the Lord, you treat them with honor and respect. In fact, he goes on in chapter 3, verse 8, to sum up all of you. All of you, be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. You, You could just keep reading through Peter, and he talks about this is how you live in front of a Christless culture. You show them Christ. You show them the character of Jesus Christ. Everything that we're talking about in Titus 3 in the first two verses is what Jesus did. It's how he lived. It's how he responded. We're called to that. We're called to that. In fact, the non-Christian world is actually marked by being unsubmissive, disobedient, pursuing what is detrimental, speaking slanderously of people, combative, arrogant, and self-promotional. That's the marks of a non-Christian. We should be nothing like that, especially towards those who oppose our viewpoints. You ever think about what motive actually separates a Christian's respectful response to a culture that opposes our worldview from that of, say, someone like Gandhi or Martin Luther King Jr.? We do it for one reason, one motive, to display Jesus and the gospel, which is actually exactly where Paul goes next, because he knows as soon as I say that you have to take that godless government and be submissive and obedient and doing good to them and respectful and responsible, someone's going to say, that's just not possible. That's not natural. And I think Paul says, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. 
So this first mark, it's there and it's written and it doesn't move. It's, it's stone and we're all going to struggle with it. We're going to wrestle with this pillar of truth here and, and we're going to lose because it's not going to move. But you need to lose. You need to lose in that struggle because of the gospel. Because of the gospel. So, yes, gospel-centered citizens. We promote a Christ-centered character. But that leads us to the second way in which we respond to a Christless culture. Secondly, gospel-centered citizens remember their non-Christian character. Their non-Christian character. Your non-Christian character. Remember when you were a non-Christian? Can you remember that far back? Some of you are like, yeah, I was just saved a week ago. So it's fresh in my mind. Or one that long ago. Some of you say, oh, I, I, I've been a believer my whole life. I've lived a good life my whole life. Then you're the one I want to talk to. I, I've never struggled really with sin. And I've never been this bad. So I'm not sure that I'm called to this. No, here's, here are the characteristics of all of us. And we, we, need, to, we need to rehearse these to ourselves. We, we remember our own non-Christian character. That's how we live this way. It's what verse 3 says. Do you see the first word of verse three? For, how can we live this way in front of government? Because, here's the way, we also once were. This is who we were before we were saved. So we're gonna see the foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, angry, hateful way our government and our culture acts. And our instinctive pivot is to oppose them. So we're going to remind ourselves that we were the same way. That all those qualities marked us. What are those qualities? This will be real encouraging. Remember, we were fools. We were fools. We had no Godward sense. We did not see things as the creator sees them. We were so self-focused we foolishly pursued life in a way that was opposite to what would actually bring us the most benefit. We were fools. We thought we were smart. We had degrees in education and we were idiots. That's the Greek term, by the way. I'm not kidding. Moranos, morons, fools. Second, we were disobedient. We were disobedient. The characteristic of our life before Christ was not obedience to God's truth. It was just the opposite. So if you find in yourself, there just seems to me, I don't want to do what God says. Right, because you're not a Christian. That's the heart of a non-Christian. I don't want to do it, and I'm not going to do it. If your life is marked by disobedience to God, that's the sign that you are not a believer. It's what God rescues you from when he saves you. We had no internal drive that compelled us to follow the word of God. We thought our ways were more wise. We thought that our approach to life would make us happier. And so we gladly disobeyed God. We were deceived also. Third, we actually thought that we were the wise ones. We were intelligent. We were the intellectuals. We were right-headed. We're consistent. But we were deceived. Error was leading us astray. We were misled by the normal course of how the world thinks. We were also enslaved. Verse 3, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. What does that mean? We were driven by our feelings. 
Whatever we found quick pleasure in, that's what we wanted to do. We didn't care what anyone said, especially people in authority who maybe had lived life and had gone down that road. We didn't care what they said because we, were, we knew what was right and we knew what would make us feel good. So we lived for our pleasures because we were enslaved to them. We lived off all the cotton candy-like pleasures of self-interest and joy-stealing sinful actions when we could have had long-lasting, solid, life-sustaining joys in God. No, we, we didn't want that. We, we didn't want steak of spirituality. We wanted the cotton candy of pleasures. We were enslaved to them. And we couldn't get away from it. We couldn't get away from the passions to live for the moment and the mind-numbing entertainment that just marked our life hour after hour and all the imaginary image ways that we propped up in our mind that made us think if I live this way and have this attitude people will accept me and they won't reject me how deceptive we're enslaved to that have you ever noticed that people live in that that those kinds of ways that they're enslaved to pleasure they think they're going to get all this joy and they're some of the most depressed people Do you know how many people are chronicled today by professionals as depressed when they're pursuing pleasure it's not getting better whatever the world says they're doing to help us it's not getting better it's actually at an astronomical rate getting substantially worse because we're enslaved to what we think will please us not only that we were angry do you see that we were angry spending our life in malice and envy we lived in hateful envy of those who seemed to have more than we did of what we craved. Those who appeared to have more and a better life than we seemed to have and we thought we deserved. Someone else is getting the bigger breaks than we are and so we just lived with a sense of despair and anger and malice and envy. Ready to climb over anybody to get what we thought would get us where we want to go. We were angry. And we were hateful. That's what it says, hateful. Hating one another, hateful. Our lives were characterized by anything but genuine, habitual, selfless love. Our lives were characterized more by despising anyone who didn't conform to our way of thinking. And did you see again the opening phrase in verse 3? We also once were that doesn't characterize us anymore so let me just put this in perspective if your approach to government as a christian brings breeds hate and anger and enslavement to your own way of thinking and pleasure all of these characteristics we just rehearsed it's not the gospel actually driving you you're actually going back into your old habits of non-Christian responses. Isn't that interesting? Because you once were these things. It's as if the gospel says, the gospel came to deliver you from all of these ways of thinking and living. So you used to be that. It's not you now. We used to be that. We used to be everything that we don't like right now as Christians. Everything that we're railing against the government about, we used to be like that. Now, I understand we weren't all as violating 
these things as egregiously as some were. I get that. But at the core of your being, this is who you were. This is who you were. Before we treat our culture with hatred, can you just stop and remind yourself? I used to be a part of that culture. I used to be a part of that. And I I know, and there should be a recognition of a holy anger towards sin and those who advocate sin, but not, not a kind of hatred and anger that makes us treat people contemptuously. Our anger towards sin should drive us to a sense of compassion towards those who are enslaved by sin because we realize apart from the mercy of God, they'll die in those sins just as we would have had it not been for God's mercy. Which leads us to the third way gospel-driven people are to respond to a Christless culture. And it's the only way that we're actually going to appreciate and value who we used to be so that we promote a Christ-centered character. Third, Gospel-centered citizens rehearse God's undeserved mercies. We rehearse God's undeserved mercies. Verse 3 says, this is who we used to be, and verse 4 has the glorious first word there, but. But. And it begins to rehearse what God has done for us. And can I just say this? If you don't rehearse it, you will forget it. If you don't rehearse it, you will take it for granted. If you don't rehearse it, you will think you deserve it. If you don't rehearse what God has done and who you were and what he has done and how he has done it, you'll think too highly of yourself. And you won't think highly enough of God. What are God's undeserved mercies? He was kind to us. You see that when the kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. What what does that mean, the kindness of God appeared? I think that's a reference to when Christ came and he lived in a manner that would perfectly satisfy God's standards of perfection and he died to satisfy God's demand for death as a payment for sin. And he substituted himself for sinful people who could not bring themselves to God. That is the kindness of God. It appeared to us. In Christ, he was kind. Second, he was loving toward us. He was loving toward us. The kindness of God our Savior appeared and also when his love for mankind appeared. This is an interesting word. It's not the normal word agape for love. It's the word philanthropia. When God was philanthropic, he showed love to the world. What is that? How was God philanthropic to the world? Well, it was God when he brought Christ dying for the sinful person, substituting himself for those who hated him, applying the righteousness of Jesus to the ones whose sin killed him, blessing people with life, blessing them with forgiveness, changing their future hope when they despised him. That's the love of God, isn't it? Third, he was merciful to us. Kind, loving, merciful. Verse 5 says, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, 
but according to his mercy. Now, we hadn't done any deeds in righteousness that could achieve his salvation. He saved us not on the basis of anything we could have done. We could not do anything to achieve salvation in any way, shape, or form. Only his mercy was given. He saved us based on one single reason, his own mercy. His mercy is not something we do that justifies having it. Mercy is given to people who can't do anything to find it. It's only mercy when good is given to a person who has done everything wrong and still receives the kind, forgiving, gracious hand of God. He's merciful to us. He also transformed us. And this is critical. So verse 5 through verse 7, you'll see it. He transformed us. He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. I'm not going to go through all these details here of what they mean theologically, but just simply put it this way. He cleansed us of everything that he found unacceptable. He caused us to be regenerated by that cleansing. He changed us into a living being rather than a dead person in our sin. He brought us into new birth, that is renewal. And he did that by the sovereign action and the power, the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. Nothing at all in any way did we do anything to make ourselves who we are in Christ. It required the Spirit of God. It was a supernatural work. And then astoundingly, after he transformed us, you know what he did? He adopted us. He adopted us. It would be one thing to wipe the slate clean. It's a whole other thing to say, now you're my family. After who we were. That's right, verse 7. So that being justified by his grace, not, not by our works, only by his sovereign choice to show mercy, we would be made heirs. What does that mean to be made an heir? As if you're a family member and you get the full inheritance as if you were a firstborn child. That's what you get when he saves you. Why all this rehearsal of this litany of theological truth? It's what God does when he saves you. It's a reminder that we and no other unsaved person can make ourselves born again or acceptable to God. It's a reminder that what our Christless culture actually needs is what only God can do. And that's transform us because of his mercy. So before we berate the culture, we should remember who the culture is without God. What are we expecting them to do? What are we expecting the culture to act like? They're dead in trespasses and sins. They don't see what we see. They don't understand what we understand. They've not had their eyes supernaturally opened. Never, ever, friends, take that for granted. God opened your eyes. He opened your eyes to see who you really were and to see Christ for who he really is. And if he didn't, you and I would be in the same boat that everyone else in the culture is in. So rehearse the mercy of God, how undeserved his mercy is. 
And you'll, you'll see how great that is when you remind yourself of how deep your sin was. And it shows you then the character of our Savior and what he did and how he lived and how he responded. And we said, that's the model. That's the model. How are Christians supposed to live in a Christless culture? Like Christians. Isn't that profound? Isn't that profound? Oh, we're supposed to be Christians. Oh. Isn't it interesting that we have to be reminded of that? I do. Friends, I'm not up here saying I don't struggle with anger towards government and challenges from society. Listen, COVID liked to have wrecked me. It was, it was tough. You didn't pray enough for Kelly during that time. keep pulling myself just like you have to keep pulling yourself back remind yourself of these things so I'm, I'm all for talking about the exceptions you say well we're going to get to those exceptions well, yeah we can talk about those maybe after the service sometime before we talk about exceptions to the demands of government could we first talk about the commandments of God and how we're going to live those out in front of government Let's start there. And we, we can go to exceptions, but we can't dismiss what God has commanded. In our parenting, we better make sure we're not breeding hostility towards the culture. I know we're trying to provide protection at times, but don't cultivate hostility. Cultivate a God-focused, gospel-centered compassion that weeps for the world's conversion in our politics, we don't need to breed contempt for those who advocate unrighteousness. We live resolved in our convictions, respectful in our responses, ready to demonstrate a life full of intentional goodness that flows from the gospel. And in our interactions with culture in general, we learn to walk the fine line of hating sin without becoming a hateful person. Not in our attitude, not in our actions, not in our speech. We demonstrate a humble righteousness because we know how we used to be trapped in the same world system and we were mercifully liberated by a kind and gracious Savior. We're not here to be morally conservative adherents. We're to be gospel-centered citizens. Let's pray God helps us with that. Father, we do need this help and we pray for it. And we know that what we read here is easier to read and talk about than it is to live out and there's going to be challenges to us likely this very week. Perhaps they grow more intense. Perhaps you show mercy on our country and we see a revival and people coming to faith in Christ and its impact on the culture is to drive us back towards a more righteous approach to life. And we certainly pray for that. But Lord, I pray that this congregation that sits here today looks like and is motivated by the gospel that we say we believe, the gospel that we say has saved us, the gospel we look at and say has been undeserved, but by your mercy you've transformed us with. 
And I pray for those who are here who still live in the culture of the unrighteous and they still live in the unsaved world. Lord, would you save them? Not on the basis of deeds which they have done in righteousness, but save them, Lord, according to your mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Pour out the Spirit upon them richly through Jesus Christ. Help them see that they can be acceptable to you because of your grace and heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We pray for this and trust you with the results in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.